You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For November 11th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Battery storage has come a long way in the U.S. in recent years. From a low base of just 200 megawatts five years ago, battery capacity on the grid has grown tenfold to 2 gigawatts today. And storage deployment is only accelerating. According to our guest today, there are now some 75 gigawatts of storage projects in the pipeline. One recent utility procurement was for a whopping 770 megawatts. That's nearly four times as much utility battery capacity as existed in the entire U.S. five years ago in one procurement. But the growth in battery storage isn't just about volume. Storage is also now being deployed to meet a whole variety of applications. Where nearly all of the storage on the grid five years ago was used by utilities just for frequency regulation, today it provides many other services, partly thanks to FERC Order 841 and other new policy and regulatory mechanisms. Today, battery systems are regularly considered as part of utility integrated resource plans to provide functions like resource adequacy, where it has been particularly useful on the California grid in this year's public safety power shutoffs, and to provide power at congested points on the transmission grid instead of having to build new transmission capacity. And a third of the installed battery capacity now is actually on the customer side of the meter, where it is being used to do things like mitigate demand charges and provide resilience. For example, allowing a microgrid to keep functioning when grid power is shut off. It's an incredibly complex sector, with market rules continuing to evolve, and storage being employed to provide a growing list of services. And let's not forget all the kinds of storage that are not batteries, like flywheel-based storage devices and thermal storage systems. It's all evolving and growing so quickly that it's hard to even keep an accurate tally of deployments so far. So I thought, who better to bring us up to speed on all this than Jason Berwin, the Vice President of Policy at the Energy Storage Association. Jason last joined us on the show way back in Episode 8 in 2015, so he's had a front row seat to the evolution of the sector over the past five years, and being a policy wonk extraordinaire, he has an excellent grasp of the new policies that have supported the growth of the sector. He's also a keen observer of storage technologies, and shared with us his outlook for the kinds of evolution that we may expect in the storage sector over the coming years. So all of you grid geeks out there are definitely going to appreciate this episode, which I have given a geek rating of 9. And if you are not yet as geeky as we are about storage, you might find it helpful to go back and listen to episode 8, where we spent more time explaining the fundamentals of storage participation on the grid. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll review some recent announcements that could spell the end of internal combustion engine vehicle sales in California and New Jersey. We'll note the impressive growth of new wind and solar capacity in the U.S. this year. And we'll have an extra-long edition of our very popular ongoing segment, Coal Death Watch. And for those of you who are wondering if we're going to talk about the results of the U.S. election in this episode, no, we are not. With only a week between Election Day and the launch of this episode, our production process would not leave enough time 
time to comment on the results in this episode, but we will discuss it in the next episode, so stay tuned for that. And now, our conversation with Jason Berwin, recorded September 23rd, 2020. So let's bring him back to the conversation now. Welcome back, Jason, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be back with you. You last joined us on the show way back in 2015, which was episode eight. And at that time, you just started at the Energy Storage Association, where you are now the vice president of policy. But the storage sector was really just getting started then, and now it's getting to be a significant business. So just to get us started here, why don't you give us a quick recap of what has changed since 2015? Yeah, I feel very fortunate to have been present in front row seats for the last five years as the U.S. energy storage industry has grown and evolved. So when I joined the Energy Storage Association in 2015, there were, I think, just over 200 megawatts of battery storage operating on the grid. Almost all of that was front of meter. Most of it was less than one hour in duration. And the reason that it was all mostly less than one hour in duration was because it was being used almost entirely for frequency regulation, which therefore meant that most of it was showing up in the two markets where the first economic case for energy storage, PJM and ERCOT's fast responding regulation markets. And these assets were Again, almost entirely standalone storage, directly connecting the storage assets. At the same time as that was happening, we in 2015 had yet to see a utility integrated resource plan seeking or selecting storage that was not pumped hydropower. And certainly outside of California, which at that point was just getting its energy storage procurement mandate off the ground, that was it. There was no procurement happening outside of California. And let me just offer a quick clarification there. So when you say front of meter, that means it's on the utility side of the meter. In other words, these are utility scale, utility assets essentially that were being used to, as you say, provide frequency regulation, which is something that needs to happen on the grid. It doesn't have anything to do with what happens really on the customer side. Correct. And those storage assets were participating in, as you say, the PJM, which is the, the wholesale market that operates in sort of the Midwest, Northeast part of the U.S., and ERCOT, which is the structured wholesale market in Texas. So, so back then in 2015, these were utility-scale projects that were bidding into structured wholesale markets. They were not really part of the retail utilities. They weren't something that was happening on the customer side of the meter, and they weren't really participating as what we now think of as DERs or distributed energy resources. Yeah. And we were all super jazzed because look yeah. at these awesome batteries providing frequency regulation, getting paid, managing to be like a profitable endeavor, which is why PJM's market got suddenly a lot of battery storage. And it's funny to think about that now because from where we sit here in 2020, I mean, that was incredibly important. You know, I think back then, Terry Boston, who was then the uh, CEO of PJM, he saw this as being a really important means to bring battery storage into the electric system. And it wasn't batteries that were first doing it. It was like flywheels that had kind of blazed the path. The folks at Beacon Storage had been really the pushing forces on things like FERC Order 755, which set in place 
the pay for performance rules. A lot of history here. I don't want to bore you with the history, but it was just at that point in time, things were exciting. It's been quite a journey in these last five years to where we are now. Right. So where are we now? Well, let's see. Here we are in the second half of 2020. I have to double check exactly what's been installed on the grid, but I think we are close to two gigawatts, that is to say 2,000 megawatts of new battery storage installed on the electric system. I think- So that's just to put that in perspective, that's 10X what it was in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we're quite at the two gigawatt mark. I think we're somewhere between one and a half and two, but it's hard to track because new stuff keeps coming online. Like it's a regular occurrence, whereas it used to be like each new battery was like its own celebration. And another thing to know about that is that a third or so of that installed capacity is behind the meter. So on the customer side of the meter. Exactly. That's being driven in large part out of California, but also in Hawaii and some other jurisdictions where customer-sided storage is really starting to move. Mm -hmm. We have, I think, just a significant amount of storage that's in the pipeline as well, depending how you count. I've seen interconnection queue requests in the somewhere around the 75 to 80 gigawatts range. Obviously not all of that will get built, Wow! but you've got contracted amounts showing up at the gigawatt scale in a number of states where we are seeing utilities now sort of taking storage on not at like a tens of megawatts, but in the hundreds of megawatts, often totaling gigawatt hours of stored energy capacity in one go. I think the biggest single procurement recently announced was Southern California Edison's 770 megawatts of storage in one procurement. And another key change here certainly is that those durations are now reaching in general. I don't think I've seen folks signing contracts and starting to install things these days that are anything less than four hours because energy storage is being deployed to provide resource adequacy. It's part of the capacity of the system. It's not just the sort of short run stabilization of the grid, like those frequency regulation batteries, but it's competing with power plants and other things that traditionally are considered the reliable supply of the electric system. Another thing that I think is exciting to see is that we have very diverse ownership structures. Back in 2015, those batteries in the PGM and ERCOT markets, those were IPPs, you know, independent power producers. Independent power producers continue to be a huge driver of storage, but one of the big, big changes here is regulated utilities who were more or less completely absent from energy storage procurement 2015 are now significant owners and operators of energy storage systems for their electric system. And as I mentioned, customers too, the third of this install being for customers. Outside of that, these assets are being put into increasingly hybrid configurations, primarily with solar power, but we've seen wind storage hybrids. The first hydro and gas powered storage hybrids are operating and There are plans now for hybridization with basically geothermal. I've heard folks talking about theoretically nuclear. There's just a desire to put storage on everything. And last but not least, 
it's not just a part of the supply anymore. It's being deployed for transmission and distribution infrastructure. In some respects, I like to think that the last five years had been largely a process of mainstreaming storage as a part of system supply. And it could be that these next five years are going to be a process of mainstreaming storage as a part of our electric system infrastructure. Hmm. And storage projects are actually doing a lot more than frequency regulation now too, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, not only supplying resource adequacy, I mentioned there's folks who are building these storage units as a part of complementing or even sometimes substituting for transmission or distribution system network capacity. Customers are using it to manage their bills, especially if they face things like demand charges or they have time varying rates or have resilience needs. So you've got some real broadening of the applications of storage in our electric system, diversity of the ownership models, and expansion of the performance capabilities of these assets. I think it's not too early to say storage has gone mainstream. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like the Swiss army knife of energy, right? Like it can sort of do everything depending on how you configure it and how you use it. This is the thing grid operators and utilities and asset managers figure out is that you've got something that's just, you know, I almost think that if you're going to use an analogy, the smartphone is probably a better analogy. You've got something that is capable of doing what you configure it to do. And that flexibility provides you an enormous amount of operational capabilities. You can derive enormous amount of efficiencies if you use it right. And to be perfectly honest, this is where the smart folks are headed in the electric system because it's not just about selling kilowatt hours anymore. It's about moment to moment, making sure that you are moving energy across time to exactly when it is most valuable. And yeah. that is a sophisticated game. And maintaining grid power quality and all that along the way. I think in the energy world, this, whatever it is, let's call it 10x increase in capacity in just five years. I mean, that really counts as a very large and rapid shift. So what were the main enablers of this shift? Like, was it mainly state level utility procurement policies or was it just batteries getting cheaper and so the market effects are really kicking in or was it FERC order 841 the federal level order that instructed wholesale structured markets the RTOs and ISOs to figure out how they were going to allow these newfangled storage assets to participate alongside the old fangled conventional generators or was it sort of all of the above like what were the main policy drivers here yeah. The biggest one in which I think you touched on is certainly the rapid decline in costs. Yeah. And that's not because of the grid, that's because of electric vehicles driving a massive expansion in the global scale of particularly lithium ion battery manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so grid storage, grid battery storage has ridden the coattails of that expansion in those economies of scale. And that's part of why the costs of these systems have dropped much faster than I think previous experience in energy system transitions have historically shown. It's because this is not being driven by the grid. This is being driven by different applications. This changes year to year, but I think certainly from where we were in 2015, the, the installed costs of battery storage on the grid were declining 50% every three to four years. So yeah. that's getting you 
quickly down that cost curve. And that's, of course, why storage could go from less than one hour to four hours, why it could go from being sort of smaller, maybe single digit or occasionally double digit megawatts to triple digit megawatts. It just occurred to me that there's sort of a parallel here with solar in that what really enabled solar panel manufacturing to get going was the large availability worldwide of highly refined silicon. And that was being driven by computers who are using it to make semiconductors. Mm. So it was actually a very different industry that really helped manufacturers of semiconductor chips get down the cost curve. And that was a really key enabler of being able to manufacture solar panels at scale at lower and lower prices. In the same way here now, you've got battery storage on the grid taking advantage of the massive cost declines and the scaling capabilities that were developed by EV manufacturers or battery manufacturers for EVs. Kind of funny. Yeah. And before that, consumer devices too, right? Right. Which led this. Right. So when you have those different industrial sector linkages, combined with the fact that these are modular, you're making tiny units that put together to put into the larger facilities, and you have a product cycle time that's very short, like the amount of time it takes to iterate a production line of, say, lithium-ion battery cell is way faster than turning over a new turbine design. So just the ability to iterate the production process to gain efficiencies and performance, is it's hard to find something that's going to compete that quickly if you don't have those built-in advantages to the way this is manufactured and scaled. Mm-hmm. Well, in addition to the cost declines, then what are some of the other drivers? Because I think that really policy played an important role too here, didn't it? Sure. And I'm not just saying that as a complete policy geek <laughs> or someone <laughs> for whom the last five years has been a relentless exercise in pushing the envelope on public policy and energy storage. <laughs> so certainly, you know, one of the most catalytic parts of this have been state storage targets. California, of course, the first amongst them and a ton of credit for California's energy storage procurement targets in driving much of the early investment and learning by doing. That was 1.325 gigawatts by 2020, handily met before this year, but California wasn't the only one. We saw Massachusetts in 2016 in implementing its first target in New York following in 2017. And, you know, a steady drip, drip, drip of these to where we are now here in 2020, the latest state earlier this year, Virginia, establishing its energy storage target, 3,100 megawatts by 2035, such that we have now across the seven states that have done this, over 11 gigawatts of storage deployment being targeted through these state policies. Wow. So that's definitely a key part of the policy story here. I think another key piece that is perhaps equally important, particularly for the distributed segment, are some of the incentive programs here. California's self-generation incentive program. Now New York has its market acceleration bridge incentive program. Again, a sort of just a grab bag of different states where we have now over $1 billion that have been put into sort of incentive programs to drive the early installations and get the soft costs down of energy storage installations. So that's been 
key, and again, particularly for the distributed segment. Something that I think is underappreciated, I'll get to FERC Order 841 because there's obviously plenty to talk about on the FERC side, but one other piece on the state side that I think is definitely worth mentioning is the planning reforms that have been undertaken in a number of different states. My hat's off to the Washington State Commission back in 2017 with really the first policy saying, hey, you know, if you're a utility that has a resource planning requirement, you have to look at storage and you have to look at it appropriately. You can't just check a box here. You have to really try. And several other states have followed by passing integrated resource planning reforms, whether by regulation or by legislation. That's been complemented with utilities in some states taking it upon themselves to actually start including energy storage in good faith in their integrated resource planning and looking ahead. I'm fond of saying IRP is the new RPS. When you're <laughs> in a world of cheap, clean energy technologies, this is now about how do you look at the portfolio and analyze what's going to be cost effective going forward? Because that is that is an exercise that is non-trivial. And I think that more and more attention is being paid to integrate a resource planning precisely because that's where a lot of these decisions upstream of the procurements are being made. So now we have, I mentioned in 2015, there was no storage in integrated resource plans that wasn't just pumped hydro. I count now north of 18 gigawatts of storage being selected economically. Integrated resource planning is just saying, this makes the most sense for the ratepayer. 18 gigawatts over the various 10 to 20 year horizons of these plans across the United States. It's not just a coastal progressive thing anymore. You've got storage and integrated resource plans in places like Georgia and New Mexico and Indiana. It's showing up everywhere. And I think that is mm. really important and impactful. Mm. On the FERC side, you mentioned Order 841. Certainly, that's another thing that has changed since 2015. In 2015, we were yelling and screaming to get attention to this issue that Storage is a square peg in the round hole of wholesale market rules. We have to call it a generator, but it doesn't look like a generator. Right. <laughs> so we were running up against challenges. Energy storage industry members were being told, nope, you're not allowed to participate in our ancillary services market or energy markets because you don't, you don't look like what we think you need to look like. Well, it looks like a generator when it's supplying energy to the grid, but when it's recharging pulling energy from the grid, then it looks like a load. And I think that was a complication for wholesale markets to accommodate too, wasn't it? Sure, absolutely. And then, you know, a key thing that's in between those is you have state of charge. This is an asset that is about sort of managing as optimally as possible a limited amount of energy, which you can charge up over time. But Managing state of charge is the name of the game. That's what you're doing with an energy storage asset. And so if there's no way for the wholesale market platforms to understand that, they're just assuming, oh, you're a generator, like you have fuel, we're just going to run you. And it's like, no, 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 you can't actually do that. Mm -hmm. This thing runs out. And it needs to be some way to reflect the state of charge and the physical operating characteristics of energy storage. And that's really what was at the foundation of FERC's Order 841, which was ultimately finalized in 2018, even though 
we started talking about it in 2015. I think the Noper was in 2016. These things take time. Yeah. And Order 841 was really just a, at a high level, was about removing barriers to storage, directing the wholesale market operators that are FERC jurisdictional in the United States to create a market participation model for energy storage, a way in which storage can provide all the energy ancillary services, capacity services, and other non-market services it's technically capable of providing to have some, whether it's bidding parameters or other means by which you can reflect the unique physical and operating characteristics of storage, you know, regularizing the sort of the way the buying and selling of energy for charging and discharging storage happens. And two really key pieces here, setting a minimum size requirement that cannot be more than 100 kilowatts. So that was actually, you can put a pin on that one if we want to talk about some things that have been happening recently at FERC in terms of order 2222. But that 100 kilowatt minimum size was basically, in so many words, saying, yep, this is also going to be for distributed storage. And that was a central part of order 841 that was ultimately challenged first at the commission and then at the DC circuit that order 841 was open, not just to storage connected to the transmission system and the bulk power system, but also to distribution connected storage or customer sited storage. And that was a significant change that I think made some parties unhappy because they saw it as sort of overstepping the line between state and federal authority with respect to managing distribution systems. And again, so many pins. I've got a lot of pins to throw out and put in for this conversation. But uh, we can definitely put a pin in that because I think one of the things that comes out of Order 841, besides the fact that now the markets are regularizing how storage is going to participate in them, but also that now storage is going to increasingly sit at the intersection between state policy and wholesale market operations, which are federally regulated. And that is going to be a extremely active site for public policy going forward. Anyway, to bring it back to Order 841, the outcome of Order 841, which again, has only been implemented relatively recently and is still under implementation in several markets, is now you've brought in an asset that's supposed to operate regularly. Folks are starting to build those storage assets to participate in markets. And it's creating all sorts of second order consequences that are updating other parts of the rules in wholesale markets. Why don't you give us an example of that? Sure. Well, one of the pieces I've been most excited about and most involved in recently has been capacity market participation in reviewing PJM, the Mid-Atlantic Grid Operators Compliance Plan for Order 841, after comments from folks like yours truly and other parties to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC weighed in and said, hey, PJM, you have this rule, PJM put forward in their Order 841 Compliance Plan, that storage would be qualified for capacity at the duration it can sustain over 10 hours. There is no really good reason for that which was a large part of what we pointed out. No good, no good reason for what? For requiring storage to discharge for 10 hours in order to qualify its capacity at that. I see, the 10-hour requirement, okay. Mm-hmm. And you know, our analysis and others showed that, no, there's plenty of value in resource adequacy for storage of shorter durations. 
out of that, FERC said, we need to examine this. This is not clearly just and reasonable. And that was a decision that was made late in 2019. Here we are coming close to a year later. PJM has just concluded a stakeholder initiative to reform the capacity accreditation methods for energy storage, which is a extremely wonky way of saying there are now in the works rules that will allow storage to more readily participate and get the value to be able to be compensated for the contribution it actually provides to resource adequacy in wholesale markets. So what was the second order effect? Well, that's in this case, the second order effect is order 841 did not require changes to capacity markets. I see. But now we are seeing because energy limited resources like storage aren't exactly, again, a neat fit into the conventional resource adequacy framework, New York ISO, PJM, SPP, Cal ISO have all been revisiting how storage is accounted for in resource adequacy. Hmm. My understanding is that ISO New England and MISO are also going to be revisiting their resource adequacy rules. The resource adequacy construct as a whole has been something that folks in the clean energy industries have wanted to revisit for a while. And storage is cracking that door open because it is such a key part of the value of storage is being there to back up the system. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. 
On September 23rd, California Governor Gavin Newsom instructed the California Air Resources Board to establish rules for phasing out internal combustion engine vehicles in the state by 2035. While some casual observers interpreted the governor's order as a ban on internal combustion engine vehicles, it was not. The California Air Resources Board is the entity with the legal authority to issue such a ban effectively through its air quality regulations. But there's little doubt that the board will develop regulations to require every new passenger car and truck sold in the state to be electric or zero emissions by 2035. The zero emission standard allows for fuel cell or other types of hydrogen vehicles to be eligible, but I am personally doubtful that hydrogen-fueled vehicles will have any significant market share by 2035, except perhaps for certain kinds of heavy-duty vehicles. Effectively, it really means that California is creating a massive market for all kinds of battery electric vehicles, a market that extends beyond California to 13 other states and Washington, D.C., which already follow California's fuel efficiency standards for vehicles. And less than a month after Governor Newsom's order, one of those states, New Jersey, followed suit. The New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection issued its Global Warming Response Act report, which describes how the state could reach its goal of reducing its carbon emissions by 80% by 2050. That document calls for several measures to reduce transportation emissions, including requiring all light-duty cars and trucks to be electric by 2035, and to require zero-emissions vehicles for medium- and heavy-duty vehicles. To make the guidance legally binding, either the governor would have to issue an executive order or the legislature would have to pass a law implementing it, but if either were to happen, it would make New Jersey the first state outside of California to enact such a policy. Item 2. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the U.S. will install 37 gigawatts of new wind and solar capacity this year, more than double the previous record of almost 17 gigawatts set in 2016. That's about halfway to the 70 gigawatts of wind and solar that the U.S. would need to deploy every year for the next 15 years in order to get to a 90% clean grid by 2030. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.